Well, if you're taking notes tonight, we are in week 14, and tonight's message is called Managing Restoration. Managing Restoration. We come to a place in the story where King David has been forced to flee Jerusalem because of a rebellion led by his son. If you remember a son named, shout it out. Absalom, good. Uh, a rebellion led by Absalom in an effort to kill his father and take the throne. Absalom, last week we found, was just killed in battle. He had all this beautiful like, like hair, and it got tangled in a tree, left him dangling, and uh, ten men uh, stabbed him and killed him, and he was done. And, and even though Absalom did such a terrible thing, David wasn't glad that his son was dead. David loved his son. Tremendous love for a son, and, and so much to where he was gre- he, he is in a grieving place. He's in a mourning place. I, I, I love the fact that our Heavenly Father loves us so much, even in the midst of our rebellion, that when we do wrong, He doesn't rejoice when we do wrong. He simply wants us to come back into His arms, and He wants to embrace us, and He wants to use us, and, and He never lets anything separate us. He, the, the only thing that separates Him from us is our unwillingness to dive into His arms. He loves us, amen? He loves us, and, and in the midst of pushing Him away, He is always ready to reign in your life. And I think we forget sometimes that it's the kingdom of God and not the democracy of God. Because in America, we're used to a democratic government where everyone votes and you get an opinion and you get to say what you want to say and do what you want to do. And that's almost how we have approached church. We've approached church that, well, my opinion matters and my thoughts matter and I get to do what I want to do. And the fact of the matter is, he is a king. And when the king says do something, you do it. There's not an option. But we approach it as if it was democratic rather than kingdom. Psalm 103.19 says this, The Lord has made the heavens his throne, and from there he rules over everything. Everything. You don't get a vote. And because you don't get a vote, you're either submitted to the king or you're in rebellion to the king. You're in rebellion as if that throne was meant for you to call the shots. King Jesus comes and saves us to understand and for, and for us to get in the mindset that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am going to put everything before him and allow him to dictate every single step I take. Every word I say, everything is about him. And even in our rebellion, the Father loves us and wants us back. This is where David's at. He loves his son. Nothing's going to change that. And David's mourning. So we pick up here in his mourning in 2 Samuel 19, and we're going to see where David's at in this grieving time. Starting in verse 1. Word soon reached Joab that the king was weeping and mourning for Absalom. As all the people heard of the king's deep grief for his son, the joy of the day's victory was turned into deep sadness. They crept back into the town that day as though they were ashamed and had deserted in battle. Now, mind you, they had just followed King David into the wilderness because Absalom was taking over the kingdom. This was a great day. This is victory. This is awesome. We're getting our kingdom back. But they were ashamed 
and they walked, they had deserted in battle. The king covered his face with his hands and kept on crying, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is still mourning for Absalom. Jesus is calling. <laughs> but it wasn't like he was missing, just missing Absalom. He was mourning. He was in such a state of grief that it was starting to affect everyone. So much that what it should have been a time for joy and victory, it became a time for deep sadness. The people felt ashamed. They felt deserted. When the people came to him, he couldn't even look at them because he was literally covering his face and kept crying. Think about how those servants felt. Followed him into the wilderness on faith that he is the true king, no matter what's going on with the son. And when they come back, all, what, all he can do is talk about is where they're saying, yay, victory, we did it. All David is doing is, yeah, 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 but what about Absalom? And crying and grieving and, oh, my son, and, oh, my son. And I wonder how many times in life we go through times of mourning and loss. Sometimes it's over a loved one. Sometimes it's over the loss of a job or, or the, a failure in a goal. Um, just simply failure, period. You ever been there where you feel like you're in this constant state of grief and sadness and mourning? Of, I'm not going anywhere. When is it going to get better? We're, we're in this time of mourning. And the Bible talks about times of mourning. In Ecclesiastes 3, 4, it says there's a time to cry, a time to laugh, a time to grieve, and a time to dance. There's nothing wrong with mourning. There's nothing wrong with being in a place where you are showing your emotions. But where the problem is, is when the emotions become the lead. The problem is when the feelings start to dictate what we do. There is a time for mourning. But where David is losing it is that the time for mourning is over. A few verses after, it talks about a time for mourning in Ecclesiastes. In verse 10 through 12, look at what it says. I've seen the burden, I, I have seen the burden of God has placed on us all. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So I concluded... There's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can see. Hmm. I concluded there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. We cannot see the entire picture. So what we do is when we lose something, we mourn over a small part of the overall painting. God says, I have made everything beautiful in its time, even death and failure and loss, he says, I have made it all beautiful. And in that, there's nothing better for you to be happy and enjoy the process. Why? Because you realize that what happened was a part of the picture that you cannot possibly see entirely. Even the stuff that's not planned. Because God says, I'll make it all work together for my good. That doesn't mean he planned it out to work that way. It means stuff happens. Life happens. 
And God says, I am so good and I love you so much that I can take anything and make it work. So while there is a time for you to mourn over the loss and time for you to grieve over the failure, time for you to mourn over the miss, there is a time where you have got to move past it because there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves. You want to know who's writing this? It's King Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba. He gets it. He says, yeah, there's a time for everything. But the best thing we can do is be happy and enjoy ourselves. And I wonder how many times do we hold our head in shame and can't stop mourning what we consider lost, and it starts to affect everything around you. It starts to affect your family. Starts to affect your friends, your kids. Starts to affect your performance at work. Because we're letting a time of mourning become a lifestyle of mourning. Is this speaking to anyone? We are called to be a people of influence. The worst thing that's ever happened to the church is getting in this idea that church is about coming together in here and being great with God and then dealing with our life. But thank God for, for Sunday. Thank God for Saturday because we get to praise him. That is not what the church was intended to be. The church was intended to be this, ecclesia, a government of people saying we are going to take this fallen world and we are going to manage it because our God has restored it. That's what we're called to do. Not come once a week to get by and deal with our junk. It's coming here to get the tools to reign over everything in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're called to be people of influence. People that when, that when others look at us, they see God, they see light, they see love, and they're influenced by who we are. Matthew 5.13 says it like this, your lives are like salt among the people. But if you, like salt, become bland, how can your saltiness be restored? Flavorless salt is good for nothing, and it will be thrown out and trampled on by others. And if we can't move past one part of the picture in our morning, your purpose to add will dry out, and you become unsalty, and you don't influence anything for the glory of God. And a lot of us want to move forward and see great things. But the first thing we have to do in moving forward is to embrace something called restoration. Because God has restored us to a rightful place in his courts. We tend to walk through life as if we're waiting on heaven. We walk through life saying, I can't wait to get through the pearly gates. I can't wait to be with my Father in heaven. When Jesus says, hey, I'm going to leave and you bring heaven to earth. We have it in our mind that our goal one day is to get to heaven. Can I just blow your mind with something? If the destination was heaven, God would have never put you on Eden. If the destination was heaven, God would have never placed man in the garden. Because my scripture says even before we were in our mother's womb, he created us. He knew us. So at a time, we were all with him. If our destination was heaven, we would have stayed there. 
your destination. And it, I'm, heaven is not your home. Heaven on earth is your home. So start taking ownership of your home and start to manage it because he's restored you to the place to have the authority to manage. <laughs> your, <laughs> your, this is home. Own it. We love to praise Jesus. Thank you for saving me from my sins. And Jesus is like, well, when are you going to start managing stuff in your place of restoration? I have saved you from your sins. I have restored you. Now, what are you doing with what I've restored? I've restored your life. I've restored your place. Now, what are you going to do? Manage what I have restored. We don't need to be like David. And when others see victory, people look at us and see shame. Think about where David's at in the story. The kingdom has been restored, and David has kingship and authority over the, over the whole land again. And when people see him, they don't look, as a, they don't look at a victorious king. They're not seeing a, 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 a mighty king. They're not seeing a great man. They're seeing shame. They're seeing grief. And it's causing them to go from the season of praise the Lord, praise our king, to retreating to their homes in sadness and grief. And if David is going to take over this kingdom again, the first thing he's got to do is return to himself. Because he has lost in a moment of grief, and he is in excessive mourning. He's lost his identity as a ruler, and he's being moved by circumstance. God is not against your feelings, but your feelings were never meant to master you. David's problem was not the reality of losing his son. There's nothing wrong with David mourning the loss of Absalom. David's problem was what he forgot, that God is still in control. And that there has been victory. And that God has showed tremendous grace to David. Because God could have very well left David out in that wilderness. If you remember in the story, David even prayed. He said, if God never wants to restore me to the throne again, let it be. And they went deeper into the wilderness. And a lot of our restoration, I believe, is hinging on dependence. Being willing to depend on God in the most vulnerable seasons, in the most testing trials. But what do you do when the season's over? Because we almost stay in seasons when that's not God's goal. You ever hear people talk about, well, I'm just in a season of staying still, but they've been saying that for 10 years? Let me just be honest with you. God don't work like that. You know why it took Moses 40 years in the desert? It wasn't because of God. It was because of Moses. When he died, Joshua took him there in three days. <laughs> it's not 10 years of, I'm waiting on God. To... No, God wants to do something, but you are not managing what has already been. What has already been? You have been restored. He restored you by death on the cross. I am dying for your sins so that you are no longer separated from my Father. Now, what are you doing with it? We always talk about open the blind eyes. 
What if your blindness is what you can see preventing you from having faith in what you can't see? Because in mourning and grief, we see all the obstacles. And what we start to do is take on reality. Well, I'll never get past this. This is just how my life is, and I've just accepted it. I hear that so much. I'm just going to accept this as my reality. No, the only reality that you need to accept and walk into is this reality. You have been restored to the courts of heaven in the presence of a king, in the presence of God who will never fail you, who will never give up on you, and has commissioned you to represent him. Why are you settling for anything less? Because you can't move past mourning. You're not managing what you have been restored to. He says, I've given you keys to the kingdom. I've given my authority back to you on this earth. When are you going to start doing something with it? It's not okay to be a passive believer who's just waiting on God to return. Because you know when he's going to return? When we start managing what's been restored. Think about it. He says, I will return when the kingdom of God has been preached throughout all the earth. You know what that takes? People managing restoration. There are people who don't know about the kingdom because all they hear is about is the gospel of Jesus. Can I open your eyes to something? Jesus never preached about Jesus. He preached about a kingdom under the headship of his father and he says, I have come to show you the way, the truth, and give you life so that you can walk. He says, I am the door. All we preached about was the kingdom. And we do great in churches talking about the gospel of Jesus. And it shouldn't be minimalized because we wouldn't be anywhere without him. He's a great, he, he is everything. We don't get anything unless we receive him. But Jesus understood his place so much that he said, I'm going to leave and I'm just going to be interceding on your behalf at the right hand of my father. Now go do something with what I've, with what I've restored. Preach the kingdom. Everything submitted to my father. Influence people. But we become blind to all these obstacles. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, faith brings our hope into reality and becomes the foundation needed to acquire the things we long for. It is all the evidence required to prove what is still unseen. The only thing you need to see is faith. Faith is the vision we walk by. And that's hard, but it doesn't make it okay for you to throw it away. He says, you walk by faith, not by sight. David is not walking by faith at this point. He's walking by sight because the only thing he can see is his son's gone. My job's gone. My son's gone. Everything I work for is gone. My goals are gone. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too far gone. That's all you see. So this is what happens in verse 5. Then Joab went to the king's room and said to him, We saved your life today, the lives of your sons, your daughters, your wives, your concubines, yet you act like this, making us feel ashamed of ourselves? You seem to love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that your commanders and troops mean nothing to you. 
It seems that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died, you'd be pleased. This is how his people feel. Now go out there, look at Joab, get your behind up out of bed, go out there and congratulate your troops. For I swear by the Lord, if you don't go out, <laughs> some of you husbands and wives know what that's all about, not a, or if you were kids, not a single one of them is going to remain here tonight. And then you'll be worse off than before. Talk about a wake-up call. Joab says, can you get outside yourself for a moment and think about all those people that supported you while everyone else has turned? He's like, King David, you're selfish. How is he selfish? You care more about your loss than what was accomplished. You lost your son, but you moved forward. You've got loyal people about to leave you because you're not managing what's been restored to you. King David, your kingdom is back in your hand. Now do something. What if you experience restoration but you fail to manage what has been restored? Because all you see is what was lost. That's what the human condition tends to do. We focus on what was lost. And I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves what's been gained. Your position at the throne of the Father, to represent him everywhere. Wow. I have been restored to represent the Almighty. I'll manage that. Let's go. Proverbs 21.20 says this, In wisdom's house, you'll find, you'll find delightful treasures in the oil of the Holy Spirit. But the stupid squander what they've been given. I wonder how much of a squander what's been given to us. You've been given life. You've been given a way to break through. Chains are off of you. You're risen from your grave. You're representing God on the earth. You have absolute authority to walk in his authority, not to get your motives done, but to get his motives done. Let's not twist it. You don't get authority to do what you want. You get authority to bring heaven to earth. But we mismanage what's been given. We spend all of our time thanking Jesus for dying, but we waste what's been given to us. We praise Jesus about dying rather than praising him for who he is and managing what's been given. Think about it. Think about what goes on in church. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and saving us from our sins. Thank you. When was the last time you just praised him for who he was? When was the last time you praised him by managing what he gave? That he did not have to give. In John 14, look at this, what it says in starting in 28. Remember what I've told you, that I must go away. But I promise to come back to you. So if you truly love me, you'll be glad for me. Since I'm returning to my Father who's greater than I. So when all of these things happen, you'll still trust and cling to me. Look at what he says. He says, be glad that I'm leaving you. Be glad that I'm going to my Father. Be glad for me. And this is what intercession in church has become about. Jesus, come back, we need you. Jesus, come, and Jesus is like, can you be glad that I'm gone? 
Jesus, would you please return? Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back. He says, I'll return when my father tells me. He says, don't be concerned about that. Be glad I'm not with you anymore. Yeah, we don't read that part of the gospel, do we? He says, be glad that I'm gone. And I want you to do something in that gladness. So this is what he says, John 14, 12. I tell you this timeless truth. The person who follows me in faith, believing in me, will do the same mighty miracles that I do, even greater miracles than these, because I go to be with my Father. He says, I have restored you, and because I'm going, you're going to do greater things than I ever dreamed of. And miracles has become something we only dream of. We think it's crazy that we could actually see that. And Jesus is like, I want you to be so glad that I'm gone that you get to do this. And we're praying, Jesus, come back? Is, is, am I just sounding dumb or are y'all just, just soaking some stuff up? Like, he says, rejoice that I'm gone. Don't mourn. Why are you still grieving that I'm gone? Why are you still grieving that the fact that I, that I died for you on the cross? He's, he's like, I rose. Get over it. <laughs> and I'm not trying to minimalize the cross. I'm not trying to minimalize the crucifixion. But sometimes we've got to move past it and say, what am I doing with it? What am I managing? He's restored everything. What would you have me do? Joab tells David, you've been restored. Now con congratulate your troops and pour into them. That was what he said. Go pour into your troops. And you know, Jesus tells us to do the exact same thing. Let me read it in Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came close to them and said, all the authority of the universe has been given to me. Now go in my authority and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to faithfully follow all that I have commanded you. And never forget that I'm with you every day, even to the completion of this age. He says, I've restored my Father's kingdom, and now I'm giving you the authority to walk in that. Now go and make disciples and teach them everything that I've taught you and commanded you to do. Well, what did he command them to do? Look at verses 7 through 8 of Matthew chapter 10. As you go, preach this message. I die for your sins. Nope. Heaven's kingdom realm is accessible close enough to touch. You must continually bring healing to lepers and to those who are sick and make it your habit to break off the demonic presence from people and raise the dead back to life. Freely you have received the power of the kingdom, so freely release it. He says, make them disciples understanding what I did for them and go heal the sick, bring the dead back to life, break off demonic presence, just release it. Amen? He says, tell them about me, teach them to follow me, and, 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 and do what I did. 
the only way you get to do that is because I is if you manage what I've restored. I have restored your authority to do what I do. Now do it. He's a great God. He is the only God. There is no other God. There is no other option. And there is no room to have an opinion about the belief system of the Bible. It's one truth, not your interpretation. Some people have interpretations, and let me just tell you, it's wrong. They don't justify it because they praise Jesus. He says, go do these things because of what I restored. Manage it. Stop bringing people to church to get healed. Heal them right there. This is not designed to be the deliverance spot. You are the design to be the deliverance spot. You carry all the power of God in you. Now go manage it. Like, like let's, let, let's reimagine church. Don't bring people here to get saved. Get them saved and bring them here to get trained. This is training camp. This ain't evangelism school. The only school we're going to do with evangelism is raising you up to go out there and evangelize. I'm tired of people. <laughs> I, I, I am tired of the church being this thing where, oh, I need God. Well, come this Sunday. You know, hopefully you don't die in five days because if you don't, you're going to hell. But I hope you get saved like this coming up Sunday. No, like, what are you doing? Talk to them right there in the moment. Take a break. Just minister to them. So Joab gives him a wake-up call. He says, move forward. you got the kingdom. Now go speak into the people. In verse 8, 2 Samuel 19, the king went out and took his seat at the town gate, and as the news spread throughout the town that he was there, everyone went to him. Meanwhile, the Israelites who had supported Absalom fled to their homes. Joab just called him out and said, you're still mourning, and these people need you. You need to go out there. You need to pour into your people. So it says David goes out, and he takes a seat. And you know, from this point on, we never hear David cry again about Absalom. Because he did not do what we do. God calls us to do stuff, and our response is, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to move on. I'm not ready because you don't know what I, David didn't say that. You know what David did? David wasn't ready. But his response, he got up and took his flipping seat on the throne. He did what he realized he had to do. He didn't wait till he felt better. He didn't wait till his feelings were in check. He did what he had to do. He did it because he had a call. Let your understanding of what is right be bigger than what you feel. And when you start to do what you're called to do, your morning psalm will start to get out of your head. We wait for morning to get over. Morning gets over when you take your seat. You manage what's been restored, what's been restored to you, everything you need in life. So if you have a failure, you have a loss, you have a miss, don't wait till you feel like moving forward. Take your seat in your authority of what's been restored, and when you start to manage your seat in the Father's house, then the morning song will fall. It falls with action. As soon as David took his seat, it says everyone came to him. They all came to the gate. If we could all begin to take our seat in what we're called to do, 
a unified church and being seated with God will cause the lost to come, the abandoned to come, and the people to come. This is the reality. There are churches with thousands of people. And more than half of them cannot tell you more than anything than that Jesus died for you. That's good. But it's not the goal. You want to know why? Because you spend so much time speaking into the weakest place in the house that you don't have time to grow the rest. The way this church is set up and the vision is, is not to become the evangelism ground for the lost. It's to train up the people to go take the lost. It's to, it's to build such unity in this house and people that are taking their seats that the lost will be found and they'll come. Can you imagine a day when someone getting saved doesn't have to go through a 10-week class to start ministering miracles or to even start walking in their authority because there's such a unity in the room? Think about the upper room in Acts 2 or, or 1, 1 or 2, I forget which one. They were so unified that suddenly the Spirit... <laughs> But for some reason in church, the Holy Spirit's only up here. I get so sick of that. If you want some Holy Spirit, just come up to the altar so we can pray for you. What if, what if we got to a place where we were managing our restoration so much that when a lost soul walked in, not because of the room, but because of the unity and restoration, that their stuff fell off before the first note ever got hit. But that's only going to happen when we start to manage our seat. Just prophetically, you're better than you think you are. And you are ready. You're all ready. You are all ready to take your seat. You're all ready to move forward. Despite what you think, despite what you feel. You know why? Because his voice and his decree and his proclamation weighs heavier than your thoughts and your opinion about yourself. He says, I have already given you the authority back. So start walking. David takes a seat and then everyone comes. Look in verse 9, 2 Samuel 19. And throughout all the tribes of Israel... There was much discussion and argument going on. The people were saying, the king rescued us from our enemies and saved us from the Philistines, but Absalom chased them out of the country. Now Absalom, who we anointed to rule over us, is dead. Why not ask David to come back and be our king again? So David is taking their seat, and there's commotion in the people. They're saying, David rescued us and saved us. We made him our king. But then we rejected him and we took Absalom because he was much younger and better looking and had five pounds of glorious hair. Please don't ever leave this church because I don't have five pounds of glorious hair. It's not happening. And, yep. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and now, what is up with the phones in this place tonight? And now... At least it's the Bible app, amen? The, the word is trying to speak to us. <laughs> and now, 
Absalom is dead. And now they're saying, <laughs> we need to get refocused. Let me go back a little bit. The people are saying, David rescued us. David saved us. But we rejected him because we wanted a young Absalom. Now Absalom is dead, so let's ask David back to be our king. They only decided to follow David as king when their false king failed. And I wonder how many times we only accept Jesus as king over our life when false kings fail us. People will tithe in a heartbeat when your savings plan fails. But when you're doing good, there's no need. People will serve in a heartbeat when you don't have a job. But when you get it, the kingdom of God becomes secondary. We are very quick to put other kings up and only give God everything once that proves. There's nothing wrong with giving yourself to these things, but they should never become the king of your life. They brought him back when their king failed. We allow people to rule over us. Jesus went to Peter and asked him over and over. He's like, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know why I kept asking that? Because Peter wasn't walking in what he was called to do, feed the sheep. I love that God restores us to a place and loves us so much that even when we fail, he'll have the same conversation over and over and over just to get you to embrace your seat in his authority. Think about Peter. If you don't believe me, read it. He had the same conversation when he met him as the same conversation three years ago when Peter left him when he rose from the dead and he didn't believe he was up. Jesus found Peter fishing. Peter walked with him for three years, seeing dead men rise, seeing feeding thousands of people with five loaves of fish. As soon as he dies, he goes back fishing. In fact, if you read it, it says he tore his clothes off, got in a boat, and went out in the pond. Read it. Talk about disappointment. Oh, miracles, love. Man, forget this. I'm, I'm going fishing. And then, and then Jesus meets him again, and Peter doesn't even realize it's Jesus at first. You know how he realizes? He went through the same conversation as he met him. He says, hey, uh, how's that fishing going? Y'all catch anything? I love Je I think Jesus is sarcastic, and we don't embrace it. Because Jesus is looking at the boat, and he sees, he sees like an empty net, and he's like, hey, how's that fishing going? And then Peter's like, oh, we ain't catching anything. And then same conversation, we'll throw it on the other side. And then Peter realizes it, jumps out the boat and swims toward him, and then Jesus has the exact same conversation, only this time he got it. And he became the rock that Jesus would build his church on. And I wonder how many of us are in these repetitive conversations with God and he's waiting for you to become the rock that he wants to build his church on. But you won't manage what's been restored. It, has, it, it is done. What are you waiting on? I'm just waiting on God to release me. It's been done. You're released. Your chains are gone. We sing it. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I will exalt you. What are you waiting on? It's no longer waiting for God to get you ready. You're ready. Now go manage it. 
Going on in verse 11, then King David took Zadok and Abiathar, the priest, to say to the elders of Judah, why are you the last ones to welcome back the king into his palace? I've heard all that Israel's ready. You're my relatives. You're my own tribe. You're my own flesh and blood. Why are you the last ones to welcome me back? And David told them to tell Amasa, since you were my own flesh and blood like Joab, may God strike me and even kill me if I do not appoint you as commander of my army in his place. Look, at David was not going to force his reign. He's, he would only come back if the tribes who rejected him agreed to bring him back. So much that even though Jab, Joab was loyal to him in the wilderness, he said, I'll demote Joab and put you back. I'm going to put you back in your place to command the armies. I'm restoring you to your rightful place in my court even though you don't deserve it. And look what the father does. I will demote my son to a cross just to get you back in your rightful place. And you're still waiting on time. Why are we waiting? We're the people of God. We have victory. Get out your mourning. Get out your grief. Let's go. Let's take back the city. Let's take back our families. Let's see miracles. Let's, let's see miracles to the place where everyone in this room no longer needs them. Let me just open your eyes. We need to get to the place where we're not depending on miracles. We're releasing miracles. Do you ever remember a story with the disciples when they were asking for healing? They were Because they, they had everything they needed in Jesus. And all they were obsessed with is go and make disciples and baptize them and heal them and bring the dead out and raise them. We've got to get there by managing what's already been. Acts 3.19, you must repent and turn back to God so that your sins will be removed so that times of refreshing will stream from the Lord's presence. He will send you Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one for you, for he must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things has taken place, fulfilling everything that God said long ago through his holy prophets. The Father is not in the business of destroying to punish. He's redeeming to restore. He did it all to restore. And he did it. He wants to restore you to your original position that we lost in the fall of man. Look what happens in verse 14. Amasa convinced all the men of Judah, and they responded unanimously. They sent word to the king, return to me and bring back all who are with you. Think about this. Think about Amasa. David says, I'm going to restore you to your, throne, to, to your rightful place in the kingdom. And Amasa didn't do this. Teach me, King David. I worship you, King David. Thank you, King. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for sparing my life. Thank you for putting me back in the kingdom. He went out and he convinced an entire nation to come back to David. He managed his restoration. The greatest praise is not just thank you, Jesus but bringing saltiness back to the earth. 
influencing everything. Years ago, I joked around, we should do a sermon series called Get Salty. Hashtag get salty. Because that's our call. Not just to sit in a room and this is, this is fuel for the fire. Let's go out and consume everything. Parents, go home and the last thing you say to your kids and the first thing they wake up is God loves you, let's pray together. Maybe they'll actually grow up believing it. I mean, you, you want to talk about submission? Parents, what do you care about? Your kids loving you or your kids loving him? Because we'll spend all day, I love you, son. I love you. I love you. Do you love me? I love you. But, but how much does Jesus get? It's your responsibility to manage the restoration that's available to them. Is this good? Okay. Third foam. Verse 15. <laughs> so the king started back at Jerusalem. And when he arrived at the Jordan River, the people of Judah came to Gilgal to meet him and escort him across the river. Shammai, son of Gera, the man from Bahurim and Benjamin, hurried across with the men of Judah to welcome King David. A thousand other men from the tribe of Benjamin were with him, including Ziba, the chief servant of the house of Saul. Y'all remember Ziba? Ziba was the dude who lied about Mephibosheth. And Ziba's 15 sons and 20 servants, they rushed down to the Jordan to meet the king. They crossed the shallows of the Jordan to bring the king's household across the river, helping him in every way they could. As the king was about to cross the river, Shammai fell down before him. The very people he left who were rejecting him were the same people escorting him back in. And he only entered when they welcomed him. They all rejected him, and now they're bringing him back in. You know what Revelation 3.20 says? It says, behold, I'm standing at the door, knocking. If your heart's open to hear my voice and you'll open the door within, I'll come in to you and feast with you and you'll feast with me. David was waiting for the people to accept him back into the kingdom. God's waiting on the same thing. He's done everything. And now he's at the door waiting for you to let him into every room of your soul. You want to know how to really manage what's been restored? Open every room of your soul when he knocks. I'm sad. I'm grieving. I'm happy. I'm depressed. I'm broke. I have no purpose. Why aren't we opening the door? This is not time yet. It's been done. It is finished. Open the door. Is this all right? Verse 18, they cross. I promise I'm getting, I'm getting, getting, I'm getting near, but I'm going to take my time. They crossed the shallows of the Jordan to bring the king's household across the river, helping him in every way they could. And as the king was about to cross the river, Shammai fell down before him. My lord, the king, my lord, the king, please forgive me, he pleaded. Forget the terrible thing your servant did when you left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. I know how much I sinned, and that's why I've come here today. 
the very first person in all of Israel to greet my Lord the King. Hmm. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said, Shammai should die. He cursed the Lord's anointed king. Who asked your opinion, you sons of Zariah? David exclaimed. Who said cussing wasn't in the Bible? Why have you become an adver uh, my adversary today? And look at David's realization. This is not a day for execution, for today I am once again the king of Israel. Then turning to Shammai, David vowed, your life will be spared. To start managing what was restored, you have to come into agreement with what's been done. Look at what he did. He said, I've sinned. He didn't make excuses. He didn't make any attempt to, 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 to make, he, I've sinned. Here I am. But it wasn't alone. Because what we've been taught about restoration is just admit that you're a sinner, right? A, admit that you are a sinner. B, believe that Jesus is God's son. C, commit your life to the Lord. If y'all ain't like that, then y'all must not be Baptist because that's how I grew up and that's what I learned. <laughs> a, admit, B, believe, C, commit. But he didn't just do that. He said, I'm a sinner. But he was also the first one at the gate to greet David. In other words, you've got to admit that you're a sinner and you've got to take action and do something. This was a man who cursed the king and he was embraced and spared because he said, I'm wrong, and he went to the gate even before King David forgave him. And I wonder how many of us in our restoration, if we truly believe that Jesus has done this, we're not waiting for him to call us. We are running to him to welcome him in to wherever he wants to go. Oh, you want to be king in this area? Yeah, you got it. Take my phone, take my computer, take my TV, take my playlist, take my relationships, take the people who I've wronged, take the people who've wronged me. You get it, you get it, you get it. Sorry, Lord, you get it, you get it. It takes some action. It's not just confessing. It's paired. You confess and you take some action. You run toward him. You know why? Because he says many are going to call on me, but I'll tell them I never knew them because we're so quick to call on them, but we're never running to him. And now in verse 24, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, came down from Jerusalem to meet the king. He had not cared for his feet, trimmed his beard, or washed his clothes since the day the king left Jerusalem. I love that. That's true. Come as you are. Why didn't you come with me, Mephibosheth, the king asked. Now remember, there was a lie two chapters ago. Ziba said Mephibosheth was giving his allegiance to Absalom. So David said, all right, Ziba, I'm giving you all Mephibosheth's stuff because he betrayed me. Y'all remember that? Well, Mephibosheth replied, my lord, the king, my servant, Ziba, deceived me. I told him to saddle my donkey so I can go with the king. For as you know, I'm crippled. But Ziba slandered me by saying I refuse to come. But I know that my lord, the king, is like an angel of God. So just do what you think is best. All my relatives and I could expect only death from you, my Lord, but instead you've honored me by allowing me to eat at your own table. What more can I ask? <laughs> you said enough, David replied. I've decided that you and Ziba will divide your land equally between you. Give him all of it, Mephibosheth said. I'm content just to have you safely back. My Lord, the king. When a king decrees something, he can't take it back. So he couldn't just take the stuff away from Ziba because he already told Ziba he could have it all. He said, I'll, 
I'll divide it. And Mephibosheth, no, 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 no. I, 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 just, I just want to be with you. I'm just glad that you're king. Is God reign more important than what you get out of it? And will you serve with no promise of a return? Because the way we're wired, it's what do I get? Well, I'll serve, but how is it of advantage to me? How do you manage your restoration? Lord, here I am. And even if nothing is ever added to me, you are enough. You are enough. Psalm 86.11 says this, Teach me more about you, how you work and how you move, so that I can walk onward in your truth until everything within me brings honor to your name. He wants to ma- you to manage your restoration in such a way where you have undivided loyalty to him. Not all this, I'm loyal to God one day and loyal to this the next, or I put God here, but I'm going to put this above there. No. He says undivided loyalty. And even in Ezekiel chapter 11 and 19, it says, I will give them singleness of heart, put a new spirit in them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart so that they will obey my decrees and regulations and then they'll truly be my people and I'll be their God. What have you responded to? And what are you still loyal to? Because he wants an undivided heart. You want to know a key to managing your restoration? Anything that's not given to him in loyalty needs to be managed. And right now, I know everyone has it at the top of their head. You're thinking, God doesn't have that. If you've got that, let me just give you a a loving jab. You've you've got undivided loyalty. And that's okay to admit. I have undivided loyalty. Oh my gosh, the pastor isn't perfect. I've got undivided loyalty. I've got things I struggle with. If I told you otherwise, I'd be a hypocritical liar. We've all got stuff that we're undivided in. It's not let me walk in shame that I have undivided loyalty. It's help me to see where I'm undivided so I can submit it. The most loving thing with believers should be to say, hey, you have not submitted that to God, man. But we get so offended. Well, you won't know my business, and you don't know my life, and you need to stay out of this. And God says, let the brethren come together so that we can be made strong in our weakness. How do we do that? Hey, man, you've got undivided loyalty. Why do we get so offended when people are trying to draw us closer to God? Because what we do is, well, you need to check your own self. Well, maybe they do, but when you receive it and it's truth, don't rebuke that. Embrace the undivided loyalty and say, I've, I've got to submit this. And then pray for them. We're so quick to divide over the smallest or biggest offense. I've been there. I've been there with some of you. If you know me and Ryan, my cousin right here, we fight like every other day and then end with love you, man. (laughs) Do you ever quarrel with God? I'm so tired of this. I gave you this and you did nothing. I've been there. 
I was on a full-ride scholarship from medical school, hundreds of thousand dollars. It was a 12-year scholarship. I had everything free, and I left it for a $12,000, $14,000 a year job at a ministry in Hardyville, South Carolina that no one ever hears of. And seven years later, I get diagnosed with a brain tumor. My first conversation was, God, how the heck could you have let me down? You know what it should have been? God, where have I fallen short? Did God give me the tumor? Heck no. He doesn't do that. We live in a fallen world. We live in the fallen circumstances. We're born into sin. We're going to have some things happen. It's not, God, God, why did you do this? It's in the season of eye-opening. What more do I need to submit to you? Some of you have heard the story, but very, very short. I'm, I was managing my restoration. I went out to the beach and I had a custom match with God. How could you do this to me? I left everything. I knew you told me to do it. Why would you do that? Now I've got this. I got a $200,000 surgery. I can't pay for it. Yada, 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 yada. And God didn't say sorry. He says, you have not given me 10% of nothing since you left and came into ministry. I left the pier. I tithed in three months. That money came in and I had the brain surgery paid in full. Because it wasn't about, God, why did you let me down? It was, where have I fallen short in managing what's been restored? Do you cry about what's happening, or do you manage what's been done? <laughs> I know this is long, but isn't this good? Manage your restoration. Coming to the end of the chapter, verse 31. Barzillai of Gilead had come down from Rajalim to escort the king across the Jordan. He was very old, 80 years of age, very wealthy. He was the one who had provided food for the king during his stay in, in Mahinam. Come across with me and live in Jerusalem, the king said to Barzillai. That's good, right? He provided him the food when David was out in the wilderness, and David's like, hey, you get a place in the kingdom. You get a place in the castle, in the palace. I'll take care of you. Verse 34. No, I'm far too old to go with the king to Jerusalem. I'm 80 years old today, and I can no longer enjoy anything. Food and wine are no longer tasty. I cannot hear the singers as they sing. I'd only be a burden, my lord, the king. Just to go across the Jordan River, river, the, the Jordan river with the king is all the honor I need. Then let me return again to die in my own town where my father and mother are buried. But here is your servant, my son, Kimham. Let him go with my lord, the king, and receive whatever you want to give him. Good. The king agreed. Kimham will go with me, and I will help him in any way you'd like, and I will do for you anything you want. So all the people crossed the Jordan with the king. After David had blessed Barzillai and kissed him, Barzillai returned to his home. David offered him a place in the king, in the kingdom, in the palace. After he had done something great for David in providing food, David offered the palace and the man said, no, just take my son. True management of restoration. One, you do everything without motive or guarantee of return. And two, start being more concerned about raising up sons that go ahead of you rather than yourself. Go and make disciples. 
Are you prepared to give up everything so that someone you're fathering or mothering can go with the king? Not just a biological sense. But, you know, I, I hear the church of today always talking about how bad millennials are. Where the heck are the fathers and mothers? Why don't we stop pushing them away and start to embrace them, even if they're homosexual, even if they're suicidal, even if they're very disrespectful, even if they're like a thousand percent rebellious? Why don't we just embrace them and disciple them to the point of freedom? So that they can go where we won't be able to. That's why churches die. We're so consumed with us. And look at this guy. He says, you know what, King David? I've done what I need to do. Take my son. Part of managing your restoration is to pour yourself into others with no guarantee for your gain. Many of you know the vision of this house. The vision is to build many small campuses under 150 people to keep a small, intimate group so that we can really grow in unity. The only way we can do that successfully is not invest thousands of dollars in the teleprompters and video screens. The best way to do it is for this father to raise up sons to do what I do better than me. You know what my goal my goal for this church is not to build a church of thousands. I think that will happen. But that's not my goal. That's fruit. What my goal is, is to develop preachers that people say, Kyle, you suck compared to them. That's my goal. I want to raise up great pastors. I want to raise up apostles. I want to raise up prophets. I want to raise up teachers. I want to raise up evangelists. I want to raise up prayer warriors. I want to raise up people who will do things that I could never dream of. If we would get involved in that kind of vision, it's over. Can we get that unified? Managing restoration. In the last three verses of the chapter, and I'll close. The king then crossed over, over to Gilgal, taking Kimon with him, all the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel scored the king on his way. But all the men of Israel complained to the king. The men of Judah stole the king and didn't give us the honor of helping take you, your household, and all your men across the Jordan. The men of Judah replied, the king is one of our own kinsmen. Why should this make you angry? We haven't eaten any of the king's food or received any special favors. Well, but there's ten tribes in Israel, the other replied. So we have ten times as much right to the king as you do. What right do you have to treat us with such contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing him back as our king again? And the argument continued back and forth, and the men of Judah spoke even more harshly than the men of Israel. That argument, church, was what would eventually lead to the division of the nation of Israel into two. It wasn't enough just to praise God that the king had returned. They were seeing who was more deserving of being in his presence that it caused divide. We spend so much time arguing, what, arguing over what we get to do, arguing over beliefs, 
arguing over positions when God did it all for one thing, a unified body of believers. You know how you want to manage restoration? Manage your restored life to the courts of the king? I am sacrificing everything for his kingdom. I'm sacrificing my pride. I'm sacrificing being right. I'm sacrificing my own advancement. Everything. You know what the disciples did when they came together? They sold everything. And I'm wondering when we're going to get to a point where we want to give up everything in pursuit of him. Not this what do I deserve and well, you don't understand what I've been through and you don't get this and you don't get that. No, no, no. Throw all that away. Let's start having the conversation of what more can we lay down? What more can we lay down? Jesus, I've been restored. Thank you. Now, what would you have me do? Who would you have me pour into? Who would you have me love? Who would you have me pray into? Who would you have me lead? Who would you, who, what would you have me do? What are you willing to lay down that he would reign over it all? And when we start to do that, we're going to see God's kingdom reign throughout this earth. But it's up to us to manage what's been restored. Jesus Christ saved us from our sins and died a criminal sinner's death on the cross, not so that we could wait to get to heaven, but so that we could manage this earth and see his kingdom come and his will be done on it as it already is in heaven. And when we start to manage what's been restored, we won't have to wait to see heaven. We'll see heaven right now in our midst. Amen.